1: Nobody likes being told to do something. Today's avid readers might recall the agony of struggling through books assigned on their high school reading list. It's even worse when the person giving the orders has no intention of participating themselves. For example, the Vietnam War draft of the 1960s and 70s instilled resentment toward the war effort in those being called to serve. They hadn't volunteered. They had been pulled into something they never wanted to be part of. Those who have voluntarily enlisted in the military understand that they may be sent anywhere in the world as part of their service. Soldiers have an oath to defend their country from all enemies, foreign and domestic. But the lawmakers voting to enter such conflicts aren't going to see the front lines. They'll be safe and warm in their own beds at night, while the men and women of the military carry out their demands. In the years before the United States entered World War I, a petition was circulated by the people of Nebraska to amend the Constitution. They were tired of seeing their sons sent off to fight and die by a Congress with too much power and no awareness of the opinions of their constituents. The amendment would have done two things. First, it would have required a national vote by the American people to declare war on another country. And second, anyone who had voted yes would have been required to enlist to fight. The petition didn't get very far, but the idea also didn't immediately die out. It circulated for two decades as one world war ended and another one loomed on the horizon. And then, in 1935, Indiana Representative Louis Ludlow took a closer look. Like the people of Nebraska, he also thought the lives of the country's soldiers were too important to leave up to Washington bureaucrats. Ludlow was one of many people who believed a sensationalist media apparatus and greedy corporations had influenced his colleagues into entering the previous major conflict. The people who suffered at the hands of such greed? Everyday citizens and their families. And something had to change. So Ludlow moved ahead with his plan. He proposed an amendment to the Constitution that would have required a majority vote by the American public to authorize a declaration of war. Today, it's looked back on as one of the worst policies ever put forth by a sitting congressman. But at the time, it was lauded by 75% of the country. Those who supported it believed keeping America out of international conflicts would isolate them from violence. President Franklin Roosevelt, though, had no interest in cutting the United States off from its duty to protect vulnerable foreign allies. To leave war up to a national vote would have not only rendered future presidents powerless, but it also invited harm from hostile countries who didn't believe that they faced retribution. By 1938, the amendment still saw backing from 68% of the U.S. population. Unfortunately, the longer World War II dragged on, the more people began to drop their support for the policy. Several high-ranking senators came out against it as well. One equated it with holding a town meeting before a fire department was allowed to put out a fire. The amendment was voted on by Congress in 1938, but despite its bipartisan support, they couldn't achieve the two-thirds majority to pass it. Nearly four years later, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, officially kicking off the United States' entry into World War II. After such a horrific event, the country as a whole united behind a common goal, and support for the Ludlow Amendment evaporated almost overnight. In fact, Congress and the rest of the country moved in the complete opposite direction when it came to authorizing the president's use of force against foreign enemies. All of a sudden, they were all for it. Theodore Roosevelt was quoted as saying, A vote is like a rifle. Its usefulness depends on the character of the user. The sentiment at the time was that Ludlow had overestimated the characters of American voters. But we'll never know for sure. The members of Congress who voted against it... Well, they took aim and fired. It seems they thought democracy was too important to leave in the hands of the American people.
0: Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.
1: Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro. The first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious handwashing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Marriage changes people. For most, it makes them more empathetic to the needs of another person. Of course, not all fare so well, turning inward and harboring resentment as their needs go unmet. Georgie went in a different direction, though. Born in Hampshire, England in 1892, she got an early look at one marriage's downfall when her own parents split up a few years after she was born. Georgie's mother, now separated from her alcoholic father, had to find a way to provide for the two of them at a time when women with children did not often strike out on their own. Georgie and her mother didn't stay in one place for too long and lived with family whenever they could. As she got older, Georgie started delving into the arts, taking a keen interest in literature. Her friend, Dorothy Shakespeare, came from an artistic family, but sadly no relation to that other Shakespeare guy. And Dorothy's mother, Olivia, was an accomplished novelist who held open salons where she would entertain up-and-coming artists of the time. One such person who ran in their circles was a man named William. He, like Olivia, was a writer, and he took a liking to Georgie right away. Though their romance was unorthodox, after all, he was 27 years older than her, Georgie's mother had no qualms about their union. They married seven years later in 1917, when Georgie was 25 and William was 52. It wasn't the happiest of ceremonies, though. Their marriage had gotten off to a rocky start, as William still harbored feelings for two other women. So on their honeymoon, Georgie, who now just went by George at her husband's request, tried to smooth things out. She wanted to reassure him that he had made the right choice and asked for assistance from a third party. Not a therapist or a counselor, though, but a literal outside force. She sat at a desk with a pen and a blank sheet of paper in front of her and let her paranormal companion do the rest. George's hands flew across the page, writing words she had no control over. When she regaled a friend with a story of her experience, she claimed that her hand had been seized by a superior power. When it was over, the message was clear. William had made the right decision in marrying George. Her automatic writing sessions only grew more frequent from that point on, and William recorded his observations of each one. He cataloged her illegible scribblings over the course of three years. The sessions ran for hours several times a week, and not only did they convince him to forget about the women from his past, but they also somehow managed to get him to eat healthier, too. Over the years, George generated thousands of pages of automatic writing, which had turned William's fascination with the occult into an obsession, and he channeled that passion into a book of his own titled A Vision. It discussed such topics as the soul, fate, and the intersection of morality and the divine, In it, he described multiple dimensions shaped like funnels and the varying effects of the phases of the moon, all of which had been fueled by his wife's hard work. And like most men of his era, William made sure that he got all the credit. He published the first edition of A Vision in 1925, before following it up 12 years later with a revised version. But although George's automatic writings were used verbatim throughout the book, William only ever listed himself as the author. It was unsurprising, as William had already made quite a name for himself with his own work, much of which had been inspired by his wife's efforts. You see, William was a poet, and he poured quite a bit of himself into his work. His love, his heartbreak, and his beliefs all found their way into such pieces as Leda and the Swan, and Sailing to Byzantium. William Butler Yeats changed the face of literature in the early 20th century, but he couldn't have done any of it without the help of his wife George, and although he never gave her the credit she rightly deserved, he loved her. To Georgie, William was her brilliant husband. And to him, she was a vision. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. The show was created by me, Aaron Mankey.